Bibles this morning to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 22. It's on page 192 in the Pew Bibles. Uh, we're doing Children's Church a little differently this morning. Um, the the uh, subject matter of the text we're studying is, uh, it, well, it deals with sex and sexuality, and so it's a bit uh, perhaps grown up for some kids. So we're actually uh, providing a kind of Children's Church for any kids ages kindergarten to fifth grade. So any kindergartners to fifth graders who'd like to go to that, uh, they're going to be meeting down in Fellowship Hall, and I think they're watching the Chronicles of Narnia or something, so don't want any adults to jump up and say, huh, sermon on sexuality, movie in Fellowship Hall, I'll go to the movie. So if we could just, uh, any kids, kindergarten or fifth grader who'd like to go to that. Deuteronomy 22, verses 13 to 29, as we continue our study through uh, this passage. And let me read our text. It's verses 13 to 29. It says, If a man takes a wife and after lying with her, dislikes her and slanders her and gives her a bad name, saying, I married this woman, but when I approached her, I did not find proof of her virginity. Then the girl's father and mother shall bring proof that she was a virgin to the town elders at the gate. The girl's father will say to the elders, I gave my daughter in marriage to this man, but he dislikes her. Now he has slandered her and said, I did not find your daughter to be a virgin. But here is the proof of my daughter's virginity. Then the parents shall display the cloth before the elders of the town, and the elders shall take the man and punish him. They shall find him a hundred shekels of silver and give them to the girl's father, because this man has given an Israelite virgin a bad name. She shall continue to be his wife. He must not divorce her as long as he lives. If, however, the charge is true and no proof of the girl's virginity can be found, she shall be brought to the door of her father's house, and there the men of her town shall stone her to death. She has done a disgraceful thing in Israel by being promiscuous while still in her father's house. You must purge the evil from among you. If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman who uh, and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. If a man happens to meet in a town a virgin pledged to be married and he sleeps with her, you shall take both of them to the gate of that town and stone them to death. The girl because she was in a town and did not scream for help and the man because he violated another man's wife. You must purge the evil from among you. But if out in the country a man happens to meet a girl pledged to be married and rapes her, only the man who has done this shall die. Do nothing to the girl. She has committed no sin deserving death. This case is like that of someone who attacks and murders his neighbor. For the man found the girl out in the country, and though the betrothed girl screamed, there was no one to rescue her. If a man happens to meet a virgin who is not pledged to be married and rapes her, and they are discovered He shall pay the girl's father 50 shekels of silver. He must marry the girl, for he has violated her. He can never divorce her as long as he lives. Another light and fluffy and feel-good passage from Deuteronomy, huh? Another one of these thorny texts here. They're really challenging to understand. You know, my wife and I, uh, one of the things we enjoy together, doing together, is uh, we, we love science fiction and fantasy. Both science fiction and fantasy books and science fiction and fantasy movies. I, I think we both enjoy just uh, skillful authors or directors 
uh, transporting us to another world where it feels like a different reality, different cultures, you know, the laws of nature and physics work differently. I, I just love that, that kind of escape through someone else's imagination. And, and as I was reading Deuteronomy 22 this morning and its teachings on sex and marriage, I thought, you know, it feels like I've entered a different reality, a parallel universe, uh, someplace a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, uh, in terms of our own culture's views of sexuality and marriage. I mean, they just seem so different. You know, if, if a guy marries a woman and he doesn't think she's a virgin, he can take her to the town, and if there's no proof, she's put to death. I mean, it's like, what is going on here? You, you compare this text with our culture's sort of take on sexuality and marriage, and it couldn't be more different. I mean, in our culture, it's like, hey, whatever. As long as you consent, it's your business with whomever or how many ever or whatever. It just it doesn't really matter. As long as everyone's okay with it who's involved, it must be okay. And so the, the difference is just jarring between these two pictures of the Bible's take on sex and marriage and, and our culture today. Um, in fact, you might even take it a step further and say that this is perhaps one of the reasons that a skeptic might look at the Bible or Christianity and say, this is why I can't buy it. Because Christianity presents a kind of moral and ethical straitjacket. It, it suffocates personal freedom and personal expression. It, it, it uh, binds people so they can't just live the way they want to live. And, and so in a culture where personal freedom and personal expression are some of our most sacred cows, you know, to tell someone, no, you can't, or no, or this is right or that's wrong, it's like, what? You know, that, that's the unpardonable sin in our society. So, so I think that, you know, we're dealing with one of these challenging passages. So, so what are we to do then? How, how do we sort of get our minds and hands around this text? Um, what I'd like us to do is, as we've done several times in Deuteronomy when we come to these challenging texts, is I'd like us to sort of try to step into that world first, to go to that world a long, long time ago in a you know, country far, far away, and understand what it meant, what this passage meant in its original context, in its historical setting. And then once we've kind of understood and, and lived in that world a little bit, then we can start asking the question, how do these two worlds relate where this culture we live in today and God's Word and what it says? And, and where are the points of connection and disconnection? And how do we kind of bridge that gap? So let's look at the text itself. And I would uh, perhaps divide it up this way. There's sort of four general situations being considered here. Four different situations relating to sex and marriage. And the first one is this. You might call it the, the situation of the suspicious husband. Right? So that's verses 13 to 21, where the husband of a newly married couple suspects that his wife has already been with somebody else, and he sort of brings that as a formal charge. It says, verse 13, If a man takes a wife and after lying with her, dislikes her and slanders her and gives her a bad name, saying, I married this woman, but when I approached her, I did not find proof of her virginity. So, so that's sort of the charge that's being made. Now, that word for virgin or virginity is, is it's a little more broad than that. It's a Hebrew word that means something like, maybe the best English translation would be maiden. You know, it's, it's a bit of an archaic word itself. But, uh, you know, a maiden is sort of a young woman who's, you know, reached, uh, you know, sort of young womanhood and is able to have children and able to be married, but is also kind of 
um, unspoiled and, and in this case, chaste. And so this guy makes this accusation, I married this girl and she's not a maiden, she's not a virgin. And, and that's problematic, of course, uh, if for no other reason that how, you know, how do you prove that or disprove that? I mean, any guy then could marry some girl and be like, oh, man, I made the wrong choice. Well, I'm just going to make the accusation that she is, you know, not a virgin, that she is not a maiden. And, and so he makes the accusation and the girl's in trouble. So there's this process here really to protect the woman, to protect the maiden. And, and they have to bring proof. You know, so verse 15, the girl's father and mother shall bring proof. I mean, what kind of proof are we talking about? How do you prove this? Again, this is so, so different than, than our world in which we live. And the answer is in verse uh, 17. Uh, but he says, here is the proof of my daughter's virginity. And the parents shall display the cloth before the elders of the town. And the elders shall take the man and punish him. You know, what, what's the cloth? Like, what, what is this? Uh, scholars aren't totally sure. You look at different commentators. Uh, one theory is that it's sort of a ceremonial cloth that was placed under the couple on their wedding night. So when they had their first intercourse as a married couple, th- there would be perhaps blood that would stain the cloth, and that would be kind of a proof. Uh, another theory is that they were cloths used um, during the, the woman's last menstrual cycle before being married so that it was proof that she wasn't pregnant already. I know you never expected to hear this on Sunday morning when you came to church today. But there it is. Um, But whatever it was, if it was proven that she wasn't a maiden or a virgin, or or that she was, then the man was to be punished for making such a slanderous accusation. And so it says in verse 18, the elder shall take the man, punish him. That Hebrew word there means to flog. So he's probably beaten publicly. Humiliated, And then they shall find him a hundred shekels of silver, which is sort of twice the bride price. And that has to be paid to the girl's father because he's given an Israelite virgin a bad name. And then get this, she shall continue to be his wife. as uh, He must not divorce her as long as he lives. So he's, he's, you know, he can't divorce this woman. So he couldn't be thinking like, boy, I want to get out of this. All right, I'll make this false accusation. I'm going to get beaten. I'm going to have to pay some money. But you know what? In the end, I'm going to divorce her anyway. No, 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 no. There's no way out. So it was a, it was a protection, really, for this woman and a disincentive for a man to lie in such a way and besmirch her reputation. But if, however, the charge is true and there is no proof of uh, the girl's virginity, then there's this harsh punishment. She is to be taken to her father's house and the men of the town shall stone her to death She's done a disgraceful thing in Israel by being promiscuous. The, the literal Hebrew word is being a harlot, being acting like a prostitute. And while still in her father's house, you must purge the evil from among you. Notice the publicness, the public nature of all of this. You know, it, it's not just a personal thing. It's not just her private business. It's not even just her family's business. It's sort of the community's business. Because in some way, it's, it somehow tainted the community. And so the idea is that all Israel, the men of the town, have to kind of purge this from the community. Okay, so that's situation one, the situation of the suspicious husband. Situation two is a little more straightforward. Perhaps it's the, suspic- it's the uh, situation of the adulterous couple. Verse 22, if a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. So here is a straight-up violation of the Seventh Commandment. You shall not commit adultery. And when that happens, there was to be a harsh punishment. 
So you have the situation of the suspicious husband, the situation of the uh, adulterous couple. Number three, you might call the situation of the betrothed maiden or the engaged maiden. And, and here's a situation where uh, someone is engaged to be married. They're not married yet. And yet she is in a sexual relationship with another person besides the person she's married to. So verse 23, if a man happens to meet in a town a virgin pledged to be married and he sleeps with her, you shall take both of them to the gate of the town and stone them to death. The girl, because she was in the town, it did not scream for help. In other words, she consented. And the man, because he violated another man's wife, you must purge the evil from among you. Uh, it's helpful to understand here that in ancient Jewish culture, engagement was tantamount to marriage. So that once you were engaged, you were considered married. And it was just sort of a matter of, of formality that you would finally have to actually get married and then consummate the wedding. But for all intents and purposes, once you were engaged, you were married. And if you wanted to break off an engagement, you didn't just give your ring back to your fiance and be like, ah, we're done. You actually had to divorce your fiance. That's why when uh, you know Mary, or the Virgin Mary, was pregnant with Jesus, and Joseph found out about it, what does it say? He had in mind to divorce Mary quietly, because they they were considered married. And so that's why I think in this third case, you really have just adultery again is pretty much the way it's considered with the same penalties. But verse 29, if they're out in the country. And there's no one to witness it, and the girl can't cry for help, and there's no one to hear it. Then only the man shall die. So again, there's a protection built in here for women and a disincentive for men to be sexual aggressors in this case. So you have the, the situation of the suspicious husband or maybe the false accusing husband. You have the situation of the adulterous couple. Number three, the situation of the engaged uh, maiden, and then the fourth one is the situation of the unengaged maiden, the unbetrothed young woman, and that's in verses 28 and 29. If a man happens to meet a virgin, a maiden, who is not pledged to be married, and rapes her, the Hebrews literally seizes her, and they are discovered, he shall pay the girl's father fifty shekels of silver, the bride price. He must marry the girl, for he has violated her. He can never divorce her as long as he lives. Now. That one probably to me is the one that was kind of the, the most jarring. Like, let me get this straight. If the guy forces himself on the woman, he has to marry her and they can never get divorced? Like, seriously? Like, wow. You know, I understand beat the guy or throw him in jail or something, but he has to marry the girl. That seems so cruel to the woman. I mean, it's like a double whammy. It's terrible to have that, that happen to her. But again, we, we have to first of all, understand these things in that culture. And in an agrarian culture, a patriarchal society, if a woman had been violated like that, she might no longer be marriageable, marriageable if that's a word. No one would marry her then. So to not be able to be married as a woman in that culture and in that place would have been kind of social and economic death. I mean, you, you would be exposed. You would be, you'd be helpless. It, it was, it's not like our world today where, you know, if you're a woman and you're not married, I mean, okay, you can go out and get a job. I mean, you know, you can do what you want. It's not how it was in that kind of time. So even though it's kind of hard for us to understand from a modern perspective, in that culture, this would have actually been a, a level of protection 
for a woman to know that she wouldn't just be used and then kind of be unacceptable to the society. The man would have to follow through and take care of her and provide for her. So again, another disincentive for men to behave aggressively and sexually. Well, there it is. There's these four laws. Um, now, now let's kind of come back and, and ask the question, so how do we grapple with these especially as modern people, even Christians living in a modern world, reading laws that seem very far away and distant in some ways. Why is there this disconnect? What is this distance? Maybe that's a way to get at this kind of tension we're feeling. Why is there this, this seemingly two different worlds? And let me suggest at least two reasons why you have this apparent great distance between this text and our experiences today. And one is this. You have to remember that in ancient Israel, in the theocracy of Israel, where God himself was the king, where God himself was the Lord of Israel, where God himself gave the laws and they were his covenant people and they were a holy people and the the geographical boundaries of Israel marked off a holy land and a holy people. In that Israel, the moral law of God was the same as the civil law of the land. You know what I mean by those two phrases, moral law and civil law? In other words, the moral law of what is right and wrong, the moral law is this is right, that's wrong, this is moral, this is immoral, was the same thing as the civil law. What society enforced? Uh, what, what society sanctioned or permitted or didn't permit? Those two things were the same in Israel. Um, and it's, it's important to remember that so, so that something immoral like adultery was also illegal and carried God's righteous justice against it through the civil authorities. Now, when we go to our world today, and in most cultures today, those two things are separated. And I think in our culture, perhaps there's a great separation between what's right and wrong, what's moral, and what's legal. There's a lot of things today that are immoral, but are perfectly legal. (laughs) That's where we live. You know, it, it is wrong, it is immoral to sit in your house and get drunk. It's sin. But it's perfectly legal. No one can knock down your door and throw you in jail for sitting in your house and becoming inebriated. Uh, It it is wrong and immoral for a husband to to speak to his wife harshly and to, to cause her distress by being cruel to her with his attitude and his words. That's immoral. It's not loving your wife as Christ loved the church. But it's completely legal. You know, there's no law against being a jerky husband. You know, it's, it's immoral to have an affair. It is a sin, but it's not illegal to have an affair. So we, that's one of the challenges here in reading this text is that we live in a society where morality and legality are different. And we might even take it a step further and say we live in a society where even the moral question has become completely subjective and relativized. So people increasingly don't even believe there is such a thing as morality in any kind of absolute binding sense. Morality is kind of a personal construct. So all you're really left with is legality. Can I get away with it? Is it legal or is it illegal? And if it's illegal, don't get caught. You know, so you didn't really do anything wrong. You were just stupid. You got caught. If you didn't get caught, well, you know, good for you, dude. You know, you, you got away with it. So, so to go from that world where it's all just about legal, illegal, don't get caught, to a world where there actually is morality and morality and legality under the theocracy of Israel were the same thing, I think that's one of the reasons for the distance. Um, another thing to take in consideration 
I think a second consideration is not only that, that, that reality of morality and legality coalescing, but also the simple fact that the Bible portrays sexuality as a moral issue. That there is a rightness and a wrongness to our sexuality. That, that it's moral. <laughs> that, that there's an ought and an ought not. That there is a, a, a good and an evil to sex. There's good sex and there's evil sex. You know? Like What in the world is that? Because, again, in our society, sex is not moral. It's personal. It's my personal thing. It's my business, you know. And, and it's, it's whatever you want, you know. You can have sex with anyone. I mean, everyone's having sex with everyone on every channel and every song. From the Jersey Shore, you know, to the, the paradise of, you know, desperate housewives. I mean, it's just, it's everywhere. It, it's constantly coming at us. You, you know, you, you feel awkward about perhaps hearing a sermon like this. My friends, you hear a sermon every day, everywhere about sexuality coming from the opposite direction. So I hope you can bear one coming from the minority report of God's Word. We live in a culture where we're just saturated with, with whatever, you know, and as long as two people consent, anything's okay. It doesn't matter who it is or where they are or, what, you know, what the genders are, or how many people there are, or whether or not it's appropriate or inappropriate. Those considers, considerations are completely out the window because sex is a personal matter about personal expression and personal freedom and personal happiness. And as we all know, the most important thing is to be happy. You know, And as long as you're happy, it must be good. Because it's about your personal expression and fulfillment. But personal freedom is, is the sacred cow again of our society. So, so then to think that, no, no, there may be another law, that God may be God, and that His law may even extend to our sexuality as human beings, it's just completely disorienting to people today. It's like, what are you talking about? There is a rightness and a wrongness to sex. So let's trace that down a little bit. So what is it that makes sex right, and what is it that makes sex wrong? When is sex moral, and when is it immoral? When is it good, and when is it evil? When ought it to be, and when ought not it to be? What, what are the conditions? Is it just whenever it's consensual? What is it that makes it right or wrong? Well, let's go back to our passage. Let's look at 22:13 to 29. And I think what you see is that, that there's, there's kind of a moral assumption underneath all these laws. And that assumption is this, that sex is meant to function, it's meant to happen within the boundaries of marriage between a man and a woman. That that's the primary through line that connects all of these stories. That it's not just sex, but it's sex outside of marriage between man and woman that is wrong. And it's within marriage between man and woman that it is appropriate. You know, again, look at our four little situations. Situation number one, the suspicious husband. What is it that, that is so bad about his accusation? It's the accusation that the woman was sexually active outside of marriage. That's the accusation really, that, that is so heinous, that brings such a stiff penalty. Uh, situation number two, uh, the, the adulterous couple. Again, the boundaries of marriage have been crossed and there's a uh, sexual relationship outside of marriage. Situation number three, 
this really the same as situation number two. It's another form of adultery outside of marriage. So you have marriage pledged and someone who's pledged in marriage engaged uh, in intimacy with somebody else beside the person to whom they're pledged. And, and even that last one, that the really hard to understand one perhaps, verses 28 and 29, the situation of the unengaged maiden, even in that text, it, perhaps we, we can see that, that there's this assumption of marriage underneath it, that look, sex is for marriage. You know, if, if marriage is a covenant, then sexuality is the sign or symbol of the covenant. It's, it's the, the enactment and the ritual that symbolizes the covenant of marriage. So that if, if, some, if two people engage in that covenant sign, it's like, well, you need to be married then because that's the covenant sign. And, and I don't think, you know, I'm not pushing that as far to say that having sex equals marriage. But I'm trying to say the two are more tightly bound than we think that there's a tighter link between the two that I think we even have any concept of, that that's how God created it. And uh, I just want to, you know, I know some of you here are junior high, high school students, and some of you are in public schools perhaps. You've, uh, you know, at some point you have sex education classes or classes where they, you know, teach you about puberty or, you know, all those kinds of things. And, you know, they'll teach you that your body changes when you hit puberty and they'll teach you, you know, how, how the reproductive organs of the guy work and how the reproductive organs of the woman work and how the plumbing fits together and how babies are born, all that stuff. But the one thing they won't tell you in school is the most important thing, that it's for marriage, <laughs> you know, which is too bad because you'll figure the other stuff out anyway. Like... You don't have to have anyone teach you about puberty. It's just going to happen. And whether you want it to happen or not, you're going to change or become an adult. It's going to happen. Sex is not rocket science. This really isn't that hard to figure out. But the one thing that you must know, the one thing that not only affects your body but your soul, is the one thing that you will not be told, that God created sex and He created it for marriage. It's a beautiful thing that God has done. But you won't hear that, unfortunately. And that sermon is not preached through our media or airwaves. It's considered outdated and, you know, a straitjacket and stifling. Let me show you the Bible passage where God invented sex. It's kind of cool thought, huh? Look at the book of Genesis, chapter 2. Here's the Bible passage where God invented sex this is it's not a dirty wrong filthy thing it's a special creation of god a special gift from god to human beings it's in genesis chapter 2 perhaps you know the story it's when god made eve adam was alone god brought in the animals that didn't do the trick animals are great pets are great but Adam wanted something more like him, something in the image of God. And so God takes a rib out of Adam. He creates Eve. He brings Eve back to Adam. And you have in verse 23 of Genesis 2 this, this almost, um, you, you know, first wedding vow. This, this poem of, of just ecstatic joy at seeing this woman as the two are brought together. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And then that initial union of Adam and Eve in marriage and coming together then becomes, a, it becomes the prototype of all marriage. 
You know, so that marriage flows out of that. Which is why every human culture throughout history, let me say that again, every human culture throughout history has some form of marriage between a man and a woman. Do you ever think of that? You know, why? Because God wired it into us. And, and in some cultures it gets degraded and twisted in, in different ways. But it's, you know, it's, it's not like you find places where people have no concept of this sort of loyalty and this sort of commitment between men and women. It's, it's just interesting. God put it inside of us. And so for this reason, because that's how God made men and women, because God gave marriage to us, and because sexuality is a part of that, verse 24, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. That word united is sometimes translated to cleave. I think it's the old King James, right? To cleave. That's even better, cleave. You know, it's like fusing, joining. You know, you're stuck together. It's covenant language. Entering into a covenant relationship in marriage. And the two will become one flesh. Certainly the idea of one flesh can be taken in a broader, more metaphorical sense of the unity. But it's also in a very physical sense. You know, that through intercourse you are physically one flesh. So, so it's beautiful then. So you have the marriage covenant, and then you have the sign of the covenant, which is sex. And so that through that, that physical act of intercourse, you are kind of physically making a parable, if you will, of the intimacy and commitment and unity and devotion and joy and pleasure and happiness of being married. That it all fits together. You know, marriage and sex are kind of a, a matrix. They, they, they're woven together in God's plan. It's a beautiful thing, which is why I, I just want to throw up when people say that the biblical view of sexuality is stifling. It's just the opposite. It's ennobling. It's beautiful. It's, it's, it's glorious. It's the world that's, that's gross. <laughs> no. It's when it comes out of the beautiful plan of God that that it hurts and it, it breaks hearts and breaks families and breaks people and, and scars our souls because we're operating in a way that God did not intend for us to operate. But we need to say something else because I, I think we, we would not do justice to the biblical text if we didn't take it one step further. Not only are marriage and sex integrally linked in God's plans so that they go together, but then the marriage-sex matrix itself is further elevated so that it becomes a lens through which we understand God's love for His people. That God's great love for His people, His covenant love, is, is, is parabolized, is, is demonstrated or symbolized through marriage between a man and woman and, and their intimacy as a couple. It's a beautiful thing. You know, God called Israel in the Old Testament His Wife. And when Israel would worship other gods, God accused Israel of committing what? Adultery. You've been unfaithful to me. And in the New Testament, the church is the bride of Christ. In fact, Paul, the apostle, in Ephesians chapter 5, he quotes Genesis 2.24 that we just read. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then he says, then Paul says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. 
So that even that Genesis thing, Paul says, is pointing forward to God and His people. The love, the commitment, the joy, the intimacy, the loyalty, the purity that we see in marriage, in the marriage relationship, in the sexual relationship in marriage, is a a parable to help us understand the love and the commitment that God would have for His people. Which is why, you know, people have often read the Song of Solomon, not only as a love poem between two people, but as a picture of, of God and His people. Because it's, it's such a precious thing. What an awesome, awesome way of understanding sex and marriage. But unfortunately, our culture has lost sight of God. And it has uncoupled what was never meant to be uncoupled, sex and marriage. And, and so sex has become... Uh, just a personal thing. It's, it's become an expression of our rebellion against God. In, in all of our ways of rebelling against God, you know, it, it includes our sexuality. And, and rather than it being something that glorifies God and points back to His glory, it becomes something that points to our idolatry. As we say, this is about me and my personal expression and, and my desires and my proclivities. I mean, my, my, my. It's all about us. It's idolatry, self-idolatry. Because we've taken something that should have glorified God and been a conduit to seeing Him and instead has become something else, something idolatrous. And so what's the fallout in our world as we've sort of lost this vision of God and uncoupled things that should never have been separated? What's the fallout? Well, you know, well, you know, it's the world we live in. Betrayal, divorce, kids growing up without knowing a parent, you know, baby mamas, um, Addiction, broken hearts, broken lives. Like really, this is the freedom we've been promised through the sexual revolution? This is it? This is a disaster. And I think it's, you know, kids being sexualized at younger ages. Everything we see on TV that's just this constant message, it's, it's overwhelming. We're so saturated in it. We're so surrounded by it. We have become completely anesthetized to it. Our consciences are seared. We don't even feel it anymore because we're so, we're so numbed. I'm so numbed to it. It's really amazing what's happened. But it's not just that sex outside of marriage brings negative consequences in a social sense. But more importantly, it brings us under the judgment of God because it's sin. It's ultimately a rebellion against Him. You know, adultery may not land you in jail, but it will land you in hell. Because God is a holy God. And the death penalty is still in place. And God will bring it to execution someday. It's deadly serious with God. So when you look at your life, when I look at my life, and we candle it against God's plan for marriage and sexuality... How do we come out? What is, uh, you know, what is your your single life, your single sex life look like, or what did it look like? Was it marked by chastity? What is, or what did your marriage life look like, sex life? Was it was it marked by fidelity? What things have we looked at? What things have we thought? Where have our hearts gone? And then, what do you do? <laughs> When you come to grips 
with the beauty of God's plan and then the filthiness and brokenness of our lives in this arena. You know, how do you handle that? Is there any hope? Can, can that which is twisted be made straight? Can, can that which is dirty and sullied be made clean? And the, the wonderful news of the Bible is that what's impossible for man is possible for God. That God can do the impossible. God can clean the tarnished soul. He can mend that which is broken and tainted. God is all-powerful. He's omnipotent. God's power can save and cleanse to the deepest parts of our souls. We must do two things. Number one, there's two things we need to do. We have to repent. We have to come back to God and admit and agree with Him. That's what repentance means. Repentance fundamentally means sort of a changing of the mind. And it means I have to change my mind from, eh, it's okay, no big deal, none of your business, to, wow, this is sin before a holy God. We have to, we have to own that. I uh, had a buddy in seminary. He and I were in a couple classes together. And a guy looked like Clark Kent. He had, you know, the glasses and just the Clark Kent face. But, you know, he was not uh, a superman, just like none of us are. And he told me about um, when he was first married and he just became a Christian just after uh, getting married. He's in his early 20s. And he struggled in the first couple of years of his marriage especially because he really he had a huge pornography problem. He's just addicted to it. This was before the Internet, like when you had to really work to get the stuff. And, uh, and so he, you know, he struggled with it. And, and finally what he did was he said, I, I just woke up every morning and I would pray this prayer before I got up. He would say, Lord... I confess to you that I am a sexual sinner. And I need your help today to overcome this or I know I'm going to blow up and fall apart. And it was just that daily reliance on the Lord. And I I just so was kind of struck by the honesty of that. I'm a sexual sinner. Like that sounds, ooh, can I even say that? But like let's call it what it is and just own it and agree with God and then call upon His power you know, you know, the way to overcome sexual sin, the only way is by living close to God on a daily basis. You have to start the day with your Bible open on your knees, calling on God's power. Otherwise, it is such a powerful force within us, you cannot overcome it just by your willpower. You need the power of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Only by keeping in step with the Holy Spirit can we bear fruit in keeping with our repentance. So we need to repent and call upon Christ and then trust Jesus. Trust that Jesus can forgive and trust that Jesus has the power to overcome that which seems impossible, that Christ can do it. Christ's blood cleanses from all unrighteousness. I'm here to tell you this morning that Jesus Christ died to forgive sexual sins. Jesus shed His blood to forgive and purchase adulterers. Jesus died for prostitutes. Jesus died for hookup artists and players and uh, swingers. He died for uh, addicts and he died for people who are cohabitating. And he died for those sketchy internet relationships. I mean, he died for it all. He died to pay for those sins. Christ's blood can cleanse all unrighteousness if we would turn to Him. And His power can give us strength to live a godly life. Luke chapter 7. 
Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not get me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace.